Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Buttonbrooks by Thomas Mann, part two, chapter three. Now we get to know the boys a bit, again via food anecdotes. So many food anecdotes that I'm thinking. Swim said the mama fishy. We've already discussed this, but we need to do some kind of food event, don't we? Let's put our heads together and think of what we should do first of all. A cook-along, maybe, of one of the dishes? Um, maybe we can get together some of the other foods, the more simple things like peaches or whatever, uh, and just have a bit of a fun time with it. I think we should host like a video cook-along and maybe record it and chuck it up on the um, on the Hemingway List subreddit. What do you reckon of that? Um, keen to help you host it, Swim, if you've uh, got a recipe for us to follow and, and want to um, talk us through it, and I'll, I don't know what I'll do, um, but we should put that together for sometime in the near future. Swim said the moment Fishy said, my perusing of the internet tells us that we should be on the lookout for leitmotifs throughout the novel. One of the most famous aspects of man's prose can be seen in his use of leitmotifs, a technique he adapted from the music dramas of Richard Wagner. For example, the colours of eyes, teeth, upper lip, hot chocolate, they all allude to different states of health, personality and even character destiny. Leitmotifs are sort of like repeating motifs or little themes, I guess, that sort of signify a significant element of the story, like um, a good example is the music that plays every time Darth Vader is alluded to, you know, do, 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 do. the Darth Vader theme song is kind of a leitmotif of that character, musically. Uh, and then it's used in some clever ways, like when young Anakin Skywalker starts to hint that maybe he's going to the dark side, we hear a faint little lick of the Darth Vader theme song. Not the full marching band version of it, just a little, you know, flute bit of that melody to hint that that's in there somewhere um, and so in a literary sense you might refer to certain objects as a kind of theme of one character I like that I like that now we know to look out for that these little thematic things seemingly in the um, style of fruit and vegetables and food uh, but still the fact that they've got meaning makes it a bit cooler. I'm liking this book more um, in the last few chapters. I feel like it's really starting to come together a bit and be a little bit more interesting. Maybe it's just because we're hanging out with the children. It's a bit more simple. Their anecdotes are more childlike and fun. Um, Swim said the moment she says, I'm enjoying this book now. And Dorstang says... Uh, it's interesting, those little details. I should start paying more attention to those. I'm also really liking this book. That's good. I'm glad. I feel like a week ago, maybe we weren't enjoying it as much as we are today. Maybe that's just me. Um, Zox says, The peach anecdote is similar to what happened to me when I was a kid, but with a plum. I did not have another plum for many years. I'm still very wary of them. I remember thinking that with, um, what was it? watermelon seeds I thought that someone told me a watermelon would grow inside me if I ate them and I was terrified of them for years uh, anywho I think let's read on uh, to what are we up to chapter 4 yeah chapter 4 it was not simple 
the weakness of age that made Madame Antoinette Buddenbrook take her lofty bed in the bedchamber of the Et Entresol. One cold January day after they had dwelt some six years in Meng Street, the old lady had remained hale and active and carried her head with its clustering white side curls proudly erect to the very last. She had gone with her husband and children to most of the large dinners given in the town and presided no whit less elegantly than her daughter-in-law when the Buddenbrooks themselves entertained, but one day an indefinable malady had suddenly made itself felt, at first in the form of a slight intestinal catar, for which Dr. Grubau prescribed a mild diet of pigeon and French bread. This had been followed by colic and vomiting, which reduced her strength so rapidly as to bring about an alarming decline. Dr. Grubau held hurriedly, hurried speech with the consul outside on the landing, and another doctor was called in consultation, a stout, black-bearded, gloomy-looking man who began going in and out of doc- with Dr. Grubau. And now the whole atmosphere of the house changed. They went about on their tiptoes and spoke in whispers. The wagons were no longer allowed to roll through the great entryway below. They looked in each other's eyes and saw there something strange. It was the idea of death that had entered and was holding silent sway in the spacious rooms. But there was no idle watching, for visitors came. Old Senator de Champs, the dying woman's brother from Hamburg, with his daughter, and a few days later the consul's sister from Frankfurt and her husband, who was a banker. The illness lasted fourteen or fifteen days, during which the guests lived in the house, and Ida Jungmann had her hands full attending to the bedrooms and providing heavy breakfasts with shrimps and port wine. Much roasting and baking went on in the kitchen. Upstairs, Johann Buddenbrook sat by the sickbed with his old netter's limp hand in his and stared into space with his brows knitted and his lower lip hanging. A clock hung on the wall and ticked dully, with long pauses between, not so long, however, as the pauses between the dying woman's fluttering breaths. A black-robed sister of mercy busied herself about the beef tea which they still sought to make the patient take. Now and then some member of the family would appear at the door and disappear again. Perhaps the old man was thinking how he had sat, at the deathbed of his first wife forty-six years before. Perhaps he recalled his frenzy of despair and contrasted it with the gentle melancholy which he felt now as an old man gazing into the face of his old wife, a face so changed, so listless, so void of expression. She had never given him either a great joy or a great sorrow, but she had decorously played her part beside him for many a long year, and now her life was ebbing away. He was not thinking a great deal. He was only looking with fixed gaze back into his own past life and at life in general. It all seemed to him now quite strange and far away, and he shook his head a little. That empty noise and bustle in the midst of which he had once stood had flowed away imperceptibly and left him standing there, listening in wonder to sounds that died upon his ear. Strange, strange, he murmured. Madame Buddenbrook breathed her last brief effortless sigh, and they prayed by her side in the dining room, where the service was held and the bearers lifted the flower-covered coffin to carry it away. But old Johann did not weep. He only gave the same gentle, bewildered head shake and said with a smile, with the same half-smiling look, strange, strange. It became his most frequent expression. Plainly, the time for old Johann, too, was near at hand. He would sit silent and absent in the family circle, sometimes with little Clara on his knee, to whom he would sing one of his droll catches like 
the omnibus drives through the town, or perhaps look at the blue fly buzzing on the wall. But he might suddenly stop in the middle like one aroused of a train of thought, put the child down on the floor and move away with his little head shake and murmur, strange, strange. One day he said, Jean, it's about time, hey? It was soon afterward that neatly printed notices signed by father and son were sent about through town in which Johann Buddenbrook Sr. respectfully begged leave to announce that his increasing years obliged him to give up his former business activities and that in consequence the firm of Johann Buddenbrook, founded by his late father, anno 1768, would as from that day be transferred with its assets and liabilities to his son and former partner Johann Buddenbrook as sole proprietor for whom he solicited a continuance of the confidence so widely bestowed upon him, signed with deep respect Johann Buddenbrook, who would from now on cease to append his signature to business papers. These announcements were no sooner sent out than that the old man refused to set foot in the office, and his apathy so increased that it took only the most trifling cold to send him to bed. One night more than came the hour when the family gathered round his bed and he spoke to them first to the consul, good luck Jean, and keep your courage up, and then to Thomas, be a help to your father Tom, and to Christian, be something worthwhile. Then he was silent, gazing at them all, and finally, with a last murmured strange, he turned his face to the wall. To the very end he did not speak of Gotthold, and the latter encountered with silence the consul's written summons to his father's deathbed, but early... The next morning, before the announcements were sent out as the consul was about to go into the office to attend to some necessary business, Gotthold Buddenbrook, proprietor of the linen firm of Sigmund Stewing and Company, came with rapid steps through the entry. He was forty-six years old, broad and stocky, and had thick ash-blonde whiskers streaked with grey. His short legs were cased in baggy trousers of rough, checked material. On the steps he met the consul, and his eyebrows went up under the brim of his grey hat. He did not put out his hand. Gohan, he said in a high-pitched, rather agreeable voice. How is he? He passed away last night, the consul said with deep emotion, grasping his brother's hand with held an umbrella, the best of fathers. Gotthold drew down his brows now, so low that the lids closed nearly. After a silence, he said pointedly, nothing was changed up to the end. The consul let his hand drop and stepped back. His round, deep-set blue eyes flashed as he answered, nothing. Gotthold's eyebrows went up again under his hat, and his eyes fixed themselves on his brother with an expression of suspense. And what have I to expect from your sense of justice? he asked in a lower voice. It was the consul's turn to look away. Then, without lifting his eyes, he made that downward gesture with his hand that always betokened decision. And in a quiet voice, but firmly, he answered, In this sad and solemn moment I have offered you my brotherly hand. But if it is your intention to speak of business matters, then I can only reply in my capacity as head of the honourable firm, whose sole proprietor I have today become. You can expect me from me nothing that runs counter to the duties I have day, today assumed. All other feelings must be silent. Gotthold went away, but he came to the funeral among the hosts of relatives, friends, business associates, deputies, clerks, porters, and labourers that filled the house, the stairs, and the corridor to overflowing and assembled all the hired coaches in town in a long row all the way down the Menstrasse. Gotthold came to the sincere joy of the consul. He even brought his wife, born Stewing, and his three grand grown daughters, Friedrich and Henriette, who were too tall and thin, and Prififi, 
He was 18 and too short and fat. Pastor Collingen St. Mary's, a heavy man with a bullet head and a rough manner of speaking, held the service at the grave in the Buttonbrook family burying ground outside the castle gate at the edge of the cemetery grove. He extolled the godly, temperate life of the deceased and compared it with that of gluttons, drunkards and profligates, over which strong language some of the congregation shook their heads, thinking of the tact and moderation of their old Pastor Wunderlich, who had lately died. When the service and the burial were over, and the seventy or eighty hired coaches began to roll back to town, Gotthold Buddenbrook asked the consul's permission to go with him, that they might speak together in private. He sat with his brother on the back seat of a high, ungainly old coach, one short leg crossed over the other, and wonderful to relate, he was gentle and conciliatory. He realised more and more, he said, that the consul was bound to act as he was doing, and he was determined to cherish no bitter memories of his father. He renounced the claims he had put forward the more readily that he had decided to retire from business and live upon his inheritance and what capital he had left, for he had no joy of the linen business, and it was going so indifferently that he could not bring himself to put any more money into it. His spite against our father brought him no blessing, the consul thought piously. Probably Gotthold thought so too. When they got back, he went with his brother up to the breakfast room, and as both gentlemen felt rather chilly, after standing so long in their dress coats in the early spring air, they drank a glass of old cognac together. Then Gotthold exchanged a few courteous words with his sister-in-law, stroked the children's heads and went away, but he appeared at the next children's day, which took place at the Kroger's, outside the castle gate, and he began to wind up his business at once. Alright, there's that one for you. Another chapter down. Cruising. We're cruising through this book. And things are happening at a rapid pace now. Two, The two uh, heads of the family have just died in one chapter. Okay, um, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.